Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jillie Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week I'm with Dina Begum, whose book Made in Bangladesh celebrates the food and folklore of the old country, which she left when she was just four years old. It made me feel very emotional because I hadn't been back since I was a teenager and I always wanted to go, but most of my family are here, so there wasn't really a need to go in that sense. But I always had that longing to go back. It was her first book, Brick. Lane that opened the door on what was happening in the kitchens of our East End curry houses and propelled Dina into pole position as authority on British Bangladeshi culture. She told me how she assumed that role. Well, the first one, Julie, I think it just... um opened up people to Bangladeshi food. It was a bit of an introduction to Bangladeshi food as well as the local food and history of Brick Lane. And as you know, it's um, a great kind of uh, multicultural hub. Um, Loads of communities have been through that area, you know, Jewish communities, um, the French community, and then um, you've got the Bangladeshis that settled there from the 70s onwards. So there was a huge kind of Bangladeshi population from the 70s onwards up until now. Um, It's a bit kind of less now, but um, 70s, 80s, 90s, it was a huge kind of hub and it's called Bangladesh at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I used to live down there. I used to live in Whitechapel um, in the eighties. Yeah, and it was a, it was a fantastically interesting place to live. But it felt like there were two parallel universes. You know, there are the people of the East End, whoever they are at that time, and then there's the rest of the world. And you know, the Bangladesh community has been so integral to British food culture for so long that the kind of the the otherness seems really bizarre. And the fact that you're the, the first Bangladeshi writer to really kind of explain it, and I know that you're absolutely passionate about it. Why you? Why did you feel that you had to take on that massive role? Well, you know, I think it kind of happened a little bit by accident, but mainly growing up, I grew up around Brick Lane. Uh, my dad used to work as a tailor just off Brick Lane. And there was a huge garments industry in that area, which is what I focused on in the kind of the first book. But growing up, I didn't see anywhere, you know, anything represented in terms of, you know, my culture, my heritage, my food mainly. You know, I've always been, we've been a family of cooks. You know, my mother loves to cook. My grandmother was a great cook. Um, my dad loves food, you know. As you may have seen on my Instagram, he had an allotment, you know, um, and he used to grow all sorts of vegetables, including, you know, um, Bangladeshi vegetables, just to bring a piece of home into the country. And it was amazing. He grew all sorts of produce, you know, British produce, as well as Bangladesh and anything that he wanted to experiment with. And when we lived in around Brick Lane, we didn't have a house. So we, I grew up in a flat and it was the balcony that was the growing space. And I just saw the passion that my parents had for Bangladeshi food and culture. And when I went outside, you know, um, it wasn't very Asian, very much an Asian or Bangladesh area at the time. But even then in school, what we learned, there wasn't really any references to Bangladeshiness. And like you say, it became kind of othered, even though the community has been here for so long and a huge part of, you know, the curry industry, which is where, you know, the curry industry stemmed mainly from Bangladeshis who kind of sailors who often jumped ship, you know, um, settled in England, settled at ports and opened up eateries. So all these restaurants I saw around, I mean, my family's in the restaurant trade as well. I've got loads of uncles who have, um, 
curry houses and they're predominantly they're called curry houses or Indian restaurants but you know they're not uh, Bangladeshi or Indian you know they're kind of like a hybrid cuisine I would say which is great you know people love it but it's not traditional or authentic Bangladeshi cuisine so I grew up thinking that you know my family have these restaurants um there must be traditional food there but it was completely different to what we had at home um as a person growing up in England you know I was forced when I came here and um I didn't feel othered in terms of generally because I mean I felt you know very much part of things you know I had a mixed group of friends and um so I felt like I belonged in England but the food which was a huge part of my life just didn't feel to be out there so I kind of over the years I learned recipes from my mother I grew up you know I'm the eldest of five so I ended up helping in the kitchen a lot it's so interesting isn't it that I mean, we, I suppose we know now that it was always the Bangladeshi cooks who were cooking our food in the Indian takeaways and the Indian restaurants that we kind of used to go out, you know, once a week or once a month or whatever yeah. with our families. But it took a long time for that story to be revealed. And I wonder why the mm. Bangladeshi cooks were complicit in that. What was it about the relationship between India and Bangladesh and India and Britain, perhaps, mm. that kind of encouraged people to not speak out and claim what we loved so much? You know, we, curry has become a, a, a national dish in, in Britain. What was that about? I think um, most often speaking to family members and just seeing, you know, other people um the first generation my grandfather was here in the 60s um and um my dad came here in the 70s you know um and obviously my mother and my brother and I came here in the 80s um to join my dad um and it's um it began obviously you know Bangladesh is a fairly new country you know as you know you know it became independent in 1971 so it's very very much a new very you know young country um before it was part of you know um India then it became East Pakistan and then through the civil war in 71 it became Bangladesh um so it's the kind of I guess in a way it was easier to kind of keep hold of that Indian legacy because it was India for so long and it's only become Bangladesh recently. Um, I think the Pakistani era, you know, it is kind of like nobody really, um, thinks about that in terms of it was, you know, obviously it was a very painful period. I mean, so many members of my family experienced kind of, um, you know, death in the family. There was a lot of, um, it was a bloody, bloody civil war and there was a lot of kind of heartache, a lot of, um, brutality during that period. So that's kind of something that's in between when it was India and Bangladesh. So people often, you know, have very, uh, bittersweet memories for that period. And, uh, firsthand, I know my grandparents, they saw a lot of things, atrocities committed, you know, during that time. Um, so, for them, when the businesses started, like I said, when the sailors came over and people just generally start, uh, slowly started trickling into Britain from India then, it, you know, they came from the Bengal region or Bangladesh, what is now that part of it. And now it's split obviously into two, to West Bengal and Bangladesh. I think it became a matter of survival, you know, rather than kind of thriving in the UK and creating a name or creating business that reflected the Bangladeshiness. So when they started off as Indian restaurants, it was mainly as a means to kind of feed themselves, you know, when they kind of settled here. Then, you know, people obviously, you know, started liking curry or the spices, you know, everyone kind of cottoned on to, you know, how delicious it was. And it became a thing and it grew. And often, I think a lot of these um, men, you know, not just sailors, a lot of these men probably hadn't cooked before. They cooked very kind of simple dishes 
on the ships or wherever they came from and whatever they did. So I very much doubt that they were in the kitchen with their, you know, mothers and grandmothers cooking because it was, obviously it was a very patriarchal society. Um, so these things led to simple creations of re- recreations of recipes that um, they probably grew up eating. So it wasn't exactly the same and um, often things that kind of um, catered to the Western um, audience um, just to kind of tone down spices and things like that, adding cream and all sorts of different things. It, it was uh, it just became a thing in itself. Um, so, um, so it was a matter of, I guess, yeah, just survival. And then a lot of people had to send, you know, remittance back home, you know, to Bangladesh and to their families or, you know, before when it was India. So they had to kind of support their families as well from here when they started their business. Um, so it wasn't, and then when something started working, I think they were quite, um, I guess, uh, scared. And from what I've heard from family members or, you know, uncles in the industry, they were scared and about how change would affect their businesses. And also their language skills was very limited. Often uh, people who still live and work in these restaurants, you know, above the restaurants that, you know, they still do um, now. And it used to be a, a safe space for them where they found it difficult to navigate, you know, England when they didn't have, they had language barriers, you know, not much access to other resources. So it's a way to kind of like band together with the community and work together and just kind of make a go of things. Um, so that was initially what happened. And then as it kind of progressed, it became the curry industry, as you know, you know, 70s, 80s, it became huge. So everyone loved curry and it became almost like a trademark in itself, curry house, Indian restaurants. So I think that trademark in itself became a name. So people were kind of probably worried about, you know, shy about moving away from that. And then gradually in the 90s um, and in the noughties, um, people started introducing, you know, some Bangladesh dishes, probably just a handful, not many, um, onto the menu. And sometimes I'd see restaurants being called Indian and Bangladeshi. So um, so that's a little bit of progress. But now um, I see that, you know, on Brick Lane, you may have seen that a lot of restaurants have closed down. There used to be around 50. So now there's probably a dozen, um, which is sad. And they're closing due to kind of area just becoming more modernised. Well, it's social mobility, more. isn't it? I mean, what yeah. has always happened mm. with the East End is that, you know, when the Jews went in there first, they became socially aspirant, they moved out, mm. and then the next yeah. lot move in. And so it goes. But, you know, what's interesting with you, Dina, is that, you know, at some point you went into that othered culture and you said, no, Mm. hang on a second. Let's let me show you. Let me pull this out. What about this? Let me show you around. And what you've done in Made in Bangladesh, your second book, um, is really kind of owned that country, which is yours, but you left at age four. And I'm always really fascinated by people who really want to know about their country, largely because they haven't spent an enormous amount of time there. It's it's yeah. exploring their own sense of connection. Was that what drove you first? Or was it that feeling of, hang on, guys, we've got something much more interesting to say here? Do you know, I think... It's a bit of both. It started off with, I think it started off more with me being connected to my heritage. And, you know, growing up, my parents they really instilled that kind of Bangladeshi culture and heritage in us, especially my dad, my late dad. Um, he was, you know, a huge fan of Bangladeshi poetry, literature, you know, um, the arts. Um, and we often watched, you know, films together in, in Bengali or he'd read poetry or he'd, you know, tell me about, you know, his childhood growing up, as did my mother. And my father was probably the most impactful in that sense in 
terms of the cultural side of it and my mother more in terms of the cooking and the food part of it. So combined, you know, I want to do, you may have noticed in the book, I wanted to create a book that not only speaks about the food, but also the culture, the heritage, the food culture, the festivals. Folklore, the bowels, the, you know, the the mystics. I mean, yeah. tell me a little bit about the bowels who carry the yeah. stories uh, through song. So, you know, traditionally, even now, often, not as often as before, but I remember my dad telling me, you know, they'd go from village to village, especially it's a very, very much a rural thing. So back in the day, you know, up until recently, mystics in groups would follow, go around to, from village to village around Bangladesh singing songs, you know, and it wasn't to do with religion or anything. It was just the language, you know, um, the culture, the mysticism, the music and a sense of spirituality. So they could be Hindu, Muslim, and there's a huge Hindu population in Bangladesh as well, predominantly Muslim, but Hindu as well as some Buddhist and, you know, tribal cultures and communities too. Um, so they'd go and spread kind of, I guess, um, in some ways, just the... Um, the creative side of it, but some ways social kind of messages as well, you know, in terms of religion, you know, language, um, the land, it'd be kind of very many kind of messages through song, through dance, through performances. Um, and along with those, you had Jatra, which are like a theatrical groups as well. So they'd perform to villages and, you know, village folk could gather around in, you know, these small areas and you'd have a, kind of open space, performance space, and it'd be a way for people to experience arts and culture in those villages where they wouldn't necessarily go to or have the means to go to the city or experience in other ways. And has that spread with the diaspora? I mean, there's hundreds and thousands of, of Bangladeshis just in, in Britain, let alone all over the world. Has that bowel culture spread with it? A little bit, I'd say. I mean, I've been focusing on Bangladeshi food about 10 years now, and I have seen over the last like several years, few years, and I hope I had a little bit to do with with that in terms of people kind of becoming more um, in tune and kind of, um, I guess, more open about expressing Bangladeshi culture and heritage and food. You, I've seen a huge rise in that on social media. But I'm thinking about the exportation of the, mm. that culture, mm. we'll move on to the food, obviously, in a, in a second. Yes. But food is a very in- important part of identity and keeping the riches from the old country. So festivals, the main thing is song and dance. And, you know, groups come over for cultural things such as um, Boishaki with the Bangladesh New Year around spring, summertime, they come over. And, you know, the cultural festivals and things. And song and dance is a huge part of Bangladeshi culture. So that's a way for people to experience that. I suppose the confidence grows, doesn't it? And as, and I think that food is an enormous part of that. As we become uh, more interested in the backstory to the food, uh, perhaps the people who are responsible for writing about that, people like you, become a little bit more confident about sharing the the, the stuff that you might once upon a time have thought that we wouldn't be so interested in. The festivals you talk about are all celebrations mm. around the weather, actually, aren't they? And you do yeah. divide the book okay, into yeah. mm. the different seasons. Yeah. You do quite rightly say that what we know about Bangladesh, apart from the curry houses, is the climate change. And we know, mm. and and it's really important, as it is with mm. all these countries, that to, to, to not focus on the negative. But we do mm. have to talk about the sea levels uh, of mm. Bangladesh. Um, it is one of the low-lying countries. Uh, mm. It is 
absolutely at threat um, of climate change. And we're talking on the first day of COP28 at the moment. Um, in the book, you celebrate monsoon. You talk about how the festival of uh, that women dress in blue and dance in the streets uh, uh, around the monsoon. But what is the feeling uh, around this really sort of, it's not even an existential threat anymore. It is very, very real to many, many people. Mm. Absolutely. It's very much a real threat. And as you see, Every year, practically every year without fail, there's, you know, rising sea levels around the monsoon time. It's the worst. And you do have people that threat, you know, in villages, you know, we've got family affected, people in towns everywhere, people are affected. And it's um, become a country where I have seen even when I visited last year that um, people are kind of becoming more prepared. When I went to Dhaka, I couldn't sadly go to the village, you know, because of um, political situations and things. So I was quite surprised at first thinking, you know, why is the pavement so much higher than the buildings? And often this would be because of the flooding, you know, because of the rising sea levels and its effect, everywhere it is affected. And it's um, very much a topical thing that we can't ignore. And I think it's very important to highlight that and try and somehow, I guess, um, Tackle it. Yeah, and I also think that it's really important. It's the same with Ukraine. It's it's it, to see beyond the rubble, the grey pictures. Mm-hmm. Gaza as well. Israel, you know, mm-hmm. see, connect with the food. Understand that these are real people. These are real cultures. These are rich cultures that are a threat of war, of climate change. Um, and I think food has an incredibly important role to play in that. Um, let's go through your four food moments. Your first one, uh, Collegia Buna, spiced chop liver. <laughs> so this one is the only offal that I actually eat. And I very rarely, I, don't, I think I've probably twice eaten liver outside and I wouldn't eat any other offal. But um, Collegia Buna, it's something that I've always loved since growing up. I remember my mum making it. She'd spend like, you know, a couple of hours making it, taking her time. And she'd make it in this um, cast iron skillet or pan, um, coral, which is shaped like a wok. And um, there's so much richness to the dish and it's kind of really spicy. It's almost caramelised with onions. And it's not, you know, if you have like a liver pate, chopped liver pate, which is still, you know, one of my favourite things. But this is um, something completely different. And you wouldn't think it's liver looking at it or even tasting it. So in a way, you know, it doesn't actually taste like offal, really. You lose that kind of um, almost um, metallic taste um, because of the spices and the way it's cooked, you know, cut very small. And I always remember my mum cooking it. So it, it's something just reminds me of my mum, reminds me of home and just home cooking, like traditional home cooking. Your grandmother, your nanny, was the was the real culinary genius in the family. She 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 lived in yes. Birmingham. What, where yes. did so you used to go and see her, obviously from from, mm. from London. How different was the Birmingham Bangladeshi community to Brick Lane? I think it was very different. And to be honest, um, Jilly, when I visited, I, I would, I'll be honest, I very rarely went outside to see anything else other than my family. I've got six households there. My mother's got three brothers and three sisters. So it'd be a rotation between seeing all the uncles and aunts and cousins. It felt very small to me compared to London and also small in the sense that they all lived within walking distance of one another. Like now, um, my grandmother's house is on the same street as one of my uncles and one of my aunts. And then if you take a short drive, another three um, siblings live within walking distance. So we'd go to those two areas, um, Yardley, um, Small Heath when I was growing up, and Spark Hill and Spark Brook, those kind of areas. So it felt um, in some ways more traditional, more kind of... Um, intense in a way the Bangladeshiness I felt more because mainly because all the family were there so it's so many people in Birmingham your your 
maternal grandfather was yeah. the one who used to make great vats of the halva, which is your second mm. food moment, the tushashini, yeah. spiced wheat flour halva with raisins. Tell me why you chose this one. So this one I chose just because, I mean, even now, if I think about, you know, tushashini, um, it's um, shinni means uh, like a religious ceremonial dish, I guess. So you can have some other type of shinni. So shinni means when you celebrate in, in our kind of Silita heritage. So I'm from the Silita region. Um, so it's um, to commemorate something. It could be to mark a death anniversary or a passing of uh, a level of Arabic education or it's just like someone, you know, doing a blessing or something. You know, it, it's got a really nice kind of spiritual feeling and sense of community to it. And I think when I think of it, it's never very rarely made in small batches. It's where people gather. And so I think about it, when I think about it, I think of community, I think of family. And I remember my grandfather making it, the smell kind of wafting across outside the house onto the street. Because you have in the syrup, you have cardamom, uh, cinnamon and um, uh, bay leaves. And so which is like triumvirate of Bangladeshi uh, dessert spicing. So those three are always present in a lot of desserts. Um, and you wouldn't normally associate bay leaf with a sweet dessert um, in it's not very often found in Indian cuisine or Pakistani cuisine like that. But in Bangladeshi cuisine, a lot of sweet dishes have bay leaves in them. And two people would have been listed, you know, one would be holding the pan, another would be stirring. When you put the syrup in, it bubbles and sputters. So you need to be very careful and very quick. Um, but it's such a like, a, you know, it feels like a celebration when he used to make it and when we make it sometimes now as well. Yeah. And you used to take it to, to after school Arabic classes and share around with your mm. classmates. Yes. And you'd, you'd make it into balls. Um, like you see in the book, it's just um, rolled up into balls as well. So everyone would just sometimes be just handed a ball. You'd be standing in a line after Arabic class. Um it just brought such a nice kind of um, memories back, you know, thinking about my childhood friends and people that I grew up with. Your th- third food moment is uh, when you went back to Dhaka. Now, you you say you hadn't hadn't been back for since you were a teenager, uh, but you went back to mm. do the shoot for this book. Tell us through the kachi biryani, uh, through that yeah. dish, h- how it was to, to be back. Mm. No, it was literally... Um, completely mad completely madness when I landed I thought oh my goodness you know it was extremely hot and um, not as hot as it normally is because I went in November so it was just after kind of um you know aut- late autumn winter period when all the festivities begin it made me feel very emotional because I hadn't been back since I was a teenager and I always wanted to go but one of the reasons was I most of my family are here so there wasn't really a need to go in that sense but I always had that longing to go back because obviously I didn't have very many memories. I came here when I was very young, um, but went to Bengali classes after school as well as Arabic classes. Um, and we read about the seasons, read about Bangladeshi arts, literature, the poets. Um, Tagore was one of the, one of them that you know people love in Bangladesh and in Bengal, um, Nazrul as well. And I remember the stories. I remember the illustrations of village of life and villages. And when I went there, you know, just, people were just loveliest and friendliest. And because it's the capital, you know, a lot of people spoke English, so it's very easy to get around. They had Uber. I, I just love the atmosphere and the street food was amazing to see. Um, you know, people were very welcoming and it felt like home in a way, but it didn't because obviously I've grown up here. So people, even though they knew I was Bangladeshi, but they still treated me as somebody who came from another place, you know. So it felt like you're not quite Bangladeshi, uh, but then also, you know, people were great to kind of take you under the wing and just show you around. And where did you eat your kacha biryani that you're thinking of and which you put into the book? So kacha biryani, I went to eat, um, I mean, I created it at home a lot of times and I'd eaten it obviously with the family and friends in the UK. And I thought, how would it kind of um, 
compare to the Bangladeshi version. So I went to eat at one of the famous places in Old Dhaka or Puran Dhaka. And then I went to eat at a newer place where I stayed in Bonani, um, which is like the diplomatic area. And around there, there was a branch, new branch of um, Kachiburani, which had more kind of gravy. And it, the version I make is more drier version. I was quite pleasantly surprised. You know, some of them tasted very similar to how I make mine. So I was like, okay, I must be doing something right, you know. Um, and some of them were slightly different, but I think that's kind of like just a modern version, which I still liked, but they weren't the classic kind of drier version with the saffron and the potato and everything's kind of mingled in so it's not you know a rich gravy kind of birani your final food moment is uh the chitol matcha kofta fish dumplings mm-hmm. in a spicy yeah. gravy um fish is terribly important in bangladesh isn't it obviously you've got 700 yeah. rivers um in in the country but i love the fact that you know you, you talk about how there's a pre-wedding ritual of dressing a pair of fish as a bride and groom in bridal <laughs> clothes and uh, a fish cutting ceremony the day after the wedding um i presume that's one of the reasons why you chose that it as your final food moment is it it, it, it is because it's so symbolic. Fish is so symbolic. It's not just something that we just love to eat and enjoy eating, but it's present everywhere. You know, you have fish-shaped motifs um, in sweets, you know, in pastries, nokshipita or shondesh, and um, fish, like I say, in a dressed-up ceremony, mostly for weddings. It's a huge ritual. You know, the bride would dress up the next day and, you know, cut the fish um and then the husband would go out um, traditionally and buy the fish, the biggest fish he can afford, and then everybody would get together and cook that fish to kind of welcome the bride into the new home. For us, it's, it's fish is kind of, it's a lifeline, you know, and it's in villages often, most people wouldn't eat meat often. So they'd have like their little lakes and ponds um, and they'd have fish. That would be the probably the only protein they'd have access to sometimes. People would feel proud, you know, like we have in our village in Bangladesh that you have your own fish that you uh, cook with, um, your own livestock. So, you know, you kind of live off the land, your produce you grow. Um, so there's an emphasis on freshness and eating things um, that you grow yourself or you rear, you know, so that that's why I think fish is just so important. You say that um, in the acknowledgements, very, I love reading the acknowledgements, you find out so much in, in, in there. You say that you're passionate about keeping your culture alive, but um, that you say Diana Henry gave you invaluable writing advice. You're very much part of the British food community. Um, what, why did you ask her and what did she give you? You know, I've always loved Diana's work and I just, I just love the way she writes. And I just, um, so I reached out to her with my first book and she kindly offered to see it and, um, and she loved it. And she's, she asked me if I was working on something and I was actually working on this. You know, nobody's really done that kind of thing where they've celebrated and explored Bangladesh's cuisine and heritage. And I wanted a book like that. So when I spoke to Diana, she just, you know, loved the idea and she saw my proposal in the early stages. And, and I think one of the things I was quite kind of shy about doing was to talking more about my personal kind of memories. And I think that's what kind of Diana kind of inspired me to do. So just be a bit more personal in the way I told the stories and my essays. So it wasn't just about kind of uh, having a narrative, but just my narrative and my experiences. And I think that did make it much more richer in the end. And, you know, and it made me more kind of comfortable about talking about my experiences with food and my family and heritage. It makes me 
feel very proud. I've always said, and I think sometimes it's hard for people. I mean, I've grown up with, you know, people, friends and family who have experienced a lot of like negativity growing up in the UK, you know, uh, racism, bullying because of, you know, being Bangladeshi or non-white. Mm-hmm. I did see that and I did sympathise, but I couldn't empathise because I grew up and maybe I was just stuck in, you know, I, often my <laughs> family say you're just stuck in your, your heads in the clouds, you know, in the, you're in your books all the time. And I used to be, my nickname is Jimmy Bookworm when I was growing up. So um, I just love, you know, I just love, you know, reading Jane Austen and, you know, fiction from that era, you know, classics. I always had, you know, the best teachers and I love like my primary school teachers, you know, Anne, who used to be a primary school teacher. And I, I, you know, lost touch with her, but I wish I could find her. But she was so just so sweet when I arrived from England at four and just took me under her wing. And I had curiosity about people and other cultures. And I think that's probably why I've never really felt particularly othered in a strange way I haven't I've always felt like you know home is where you make it um so for me it was you know easy to have both side by side and not feel like oh you know I'm not Bangladesh enough I'm not British enough I just felt like I happened to be Bangladeshi but I grew up in the UK and I love a lot of British kind of cultures and customs and food and my friends are from all over the place you know so I just felt I could be me Thanks for listening. Do rate and review the podcast if you like it on Apple Podcasts and then head to my Substack to see what Dina has for us over on Extra Bites.